We know Jesus cried. The shortest verse in our Bibles is Jesus wept. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus and he wept at the grief of his sisters and he wept at death itself for he did not make us for death. He made us for life. And I can imagine Jesus weeping in the way both our readings have been mistaught and misapplied in the church over the years. For he did not make us for that either. Far too many women have been hurt and abused and demeaned and devalued by the way these passages have been understood and applied. Women have had husbands who think that it is their God-given right to order their wives around, to control them, to abuse them, physically, sexually, financially, emotionally and spiritually. These men have been aided and abetted by church ministers who have misread these passages, particularly the second. Some have gone so far as to say that this passage supports some physical mistreatment of a wife, or that an abused wife should stay with her abuser. These ministers are not just deluded, they are evil. They speak evil. I do not usually say things like that, but I do feel strongly about this. What they have done is evil. It is a betrayal of Jesus and his gospel. Many women and men have left the church because of this false teaching or will have nothing to do with Jesus and his church because of this. The good news is that in the last few years, the worst teaching has been condemned by the church and systems have been put in place to protect victims of domestic family violence. But sadly, some ministers still teach that ultimately the husband is the boss of the household and the wife, and that ultimately he gets to call the shots. I am not linking these people with those who defend abuse. There is a difference between nonsense and evil. But I still believe that they are very wrong, and I think their teaching and the damage that they have done would make Jesus weep. I know there are women here who have suffered abuse from husbands and from other men. And I'm sorry if this sermon brings back bad memories for you, but I'm sure that you would want the truth taught so that no man can rely on this passage to support their immoral, ungodly and often criminal behaviour. I also know that churches have often valued marriage over and above singleness, which is simply not biblical. Our passage is about marriage, so I will keep to that, but another time we should look at the passages that praise singleness. Today I'm going to look first at what families were like in the Roman Empire 
in the first century, which is the context the Apostle Paul was writing into, and that will help us understand the passage and show how radically transformative Jesus and Paul were when it comes to relations within families. And then I'll look at the passage. And I hope you noticed that the initial call is to mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. It's mutual. That's how it starts. That's how he sets it up. Paul then has three verses of advice to wives and eight for husbands. This passage is far more focused on what husbands need to do than wives. And I will conclude by showing that for Paul and for God, marriage is a mutual, non-hierarchical relationship based on mutual love and respect and sacrificial service. Paul's instructions make most sense if we see them in the context of family life in the Roman Empire in the first century, which is when Paul was writing. Uh, The husband was typically older than his wife. The average age for wives at marriage was 13 to 14, just past puberty in those days. And husbands were often at least 10 years older, sometimes much older. The marriage would have been arranged with the families deciding what was a suitable match for each. The primary role of the wife was seen to bear legitimate heirs and look after the household. As she could not go outside her house without a male carer, partly for safety and partly for perceived propriety. The common view was that the husband had sex with his wife to produce legitimate heirs. But often the husband would look elsewhere for sexual pleasure with a mistress or prostitutes or among household slaves. There were basically no legal controls on what the husband did. He could kill or rape his wife or children with legal impunity. Marriages were also affected by infant and maternal death rates. Less than 50% of babies reached the age of five. And maybe one in nine pregnancies resulted in the death of the mother. Women on average had about nine pregnancies as birth control was not very effective. So given the death rate, some women had many more than nine pregnancies. Many marriages were second or third marriages for a man looking for a wife who would live long enough to bear him legitimate heirs. Life expectancy at birth is thought to have been between 30 and 35. But the high rates of infant mortality and young wife mortality meant that a reasonable number of people lived through to their 50s and 60s and sometimes beyond. But with no antibiotics, a scratch or infection could be fatal. Now, if you marry in your 20s or or 30s, you can expect 50 or more years of married life. Not so then. So the expectations and dynamics were really quite different then. In both Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures, there was a general view that a husband did not look to his wife for intellectual stimulation. Typically, she would be younger, much less educated, and worn out by her many pregnancies. The first century rabbi, Levi Ben Gershon, said about women 
She has no more qualities than animals, if she even has a brain. He also said she was created in order to serve. And if you look at Jewish literature uh, or Greco-Roman literature, you'll find lots of statements like that. So just bear that in mind when we come to Paul's words. Because I hope with this background that you can appreciate how radically countercultural Paul's teaching here is. Husbands were actually to love their wives, to care for them, to love them as Christ loved the church, putting their interests first. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says something that was almost unthinkable then, that a man's body belonged to his wife. She decided when they had sex, and a man was to only have one wife, which meant he was to not have a mistress or, or go to prostitutes. His wife was to be the focus of his affections. So let us now look at what Paul says in our passage today. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Obviously, we're going to have to work out what Paul means by the words submit and head. Uh, most of the rest of the passage turns on what these words mean uh, in the context in which Paul uses them. But we're used to the word head, meaning leader or boss, head coach, head of sales, headmistress, head of the army. In these cases, the word operates as a synonym. It is another word for someone who has unilateral authority over someone else. But that is not how the word head, kephale in Greek, was usually used in the Greek language in the middle of the first century when this letter was written. There it often worked as a metaphor. And as a metaphor, it could mean different things. In Ephesians 1, to 23, Paul uses the word head probably to mean that Jesus has a preeminent position in the church and God placed all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. But in Ephesians 4.15, which is just before the passage that we're looking at today, Paul uses it to convey a very different meaning. There Jesus is the head or source of the body's nourishment. Paul was encouraging maturity from Christian believers and says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Jesus is head of the church, and the church is his body. And Jesus, as the head, is the source of the church's sustenance and growth. At that time in Greek medicine, the head was seen to enable the body to live and grow. So in the 
chapter just before ours today, Paul is using head to talk of Jesus as the source of life and sustenance for the church. Jesus provided the church with the full salvation it needs to come to complete unity and maturity in the likeness of Christ. And that is very different from the role of being a boss or a leader. So what does head mean in our chapter? Paul first tells us, then he shows us. In verse 23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. He's using the language we saw in the previous chapter. Jesus is the head of the body, from which the body, the church, gets the sustenance it needs for life. The husband is the head of his wife in the sense, and only in the sense, that his love is to sustain his wife. His love is to give her the life that Jesus died for, that she was made for. Paul spells it out by naming Jesus Christ as the saviour, not the boss, not the leader, but as the saviour who sustains the church through his sacrificial love. This fits so well with how Jesus talks of himself. Whenever we look at a passage like this, we need to consider it not just where it is in Ephesians or Paul's, but in the context of the whole Bible. We see when we look at the Gospels that Jesus is the one who came to serve, not be served. He is the one who washes feet. He is the one who feeds and heals and forgives. He is the one who lays down his life. He is the one who would die on the cross so that we may have life eternal. That's what love looks like. In Ephesians 5, Christ is the head, the source of the church, which he serves with sacrificial love. I hope this is clear to you. Here, head means source, not leader. It is not a word that implies hierarchy, with the man having a higher place or more authority than the woman. In our first reading today, when you hear Eve referred to as a helper, remember two things. First, Adam could not fulfil his God-given role on his own. He needed Eve so they could work together, which is not to say that every man needs a wife or that every woman needs a husband, but here we have Adam and Eve needing each other so that they could fulfil their God-given purpose to care for his creation. The representative male, Adam, was inadequate on his own. Second, God is often referred to as a helper, There's nothing inherently subordinate in being a helper. God is not subordinate or submissive to us. Adam was formed before Eve, but plants and animals were formed before Adam, and Adam is not subordinate to them. There is nothing in the order of creation that suggests hierarchy, other than that God is the creator and we are his creatures. 
Having established the type of head the husband is to be, Paul then spells out how a husband is to love his wife. That is like Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of, with water through the word and to present to her himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. When, as a husband, when I read that, I think that's, there's a lot of work in that. There's a lot of wisdom needed in that. Notice that it's what it, what it says, and, and not that husbands are to boss and control their wives as Christ bossed and controlled his church. Not husbands are to assert their authority or, or lord it over their wives. He is to sacrificially serve her so that she may have the life Christ intends for her. Not ground down, not treated as a second-class citizen, not controlled. She is to be radiant. And being ordered or living in fear are not the best way to feel loved and honoured enough to be radiant. So what are we to make of the word submit? I've read so many studies on the underlying Greek word, hupotasso. But sadly, far too many of them go round and round in circles without actually focusing on what the wife is to submit to. Because when you do that, you actually work out what it means in this context. And we know that words can mean different things in different contexts. And if you don't do that, you end up with a meaning that in no way fits with the idea that Christ saving the church through his sacrificial love. The wife is not to submit to her husband as a boss, as one with unilateral authority. She is to submit to a husband who loves her sacrificially as Christ loved the church. And this is really the most important bit of it. How do we submit to the love and sacrifice of Jesus? How do we submit to the love and sacrifice of Jesus? We, we accept it thankfully. It's as simple as that. Now, of course, as Jesus is also God, we are to obey, obey him, but there's nothing in the role and responsibilities we see here of husbands that suggests that he is to act as God over his wife. I mean, that would be blasphemy. <laughs> there is one God. We are not. And it's really important, I think, to see this because... We work out what submit means by what the wife is to submit to, and she is to submit to love. Not control dressed up as love, but sacrificial action and care that is love that helps the wife be radiant. I think it would be much better if our translators actually looked at the word submit, hupotasso, in this context and wrote this section as like this. Wives, accept the sacrificial love of your own husbands as you accept the love of the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Because in context, that's what it means. It fits with Jesus as the head or source of the church. 
It fits with the humble servant life and ministry and mission of Jesus. There's nothing in this passage or anywhere else in the teaching of Jesus and Paul that gives a husband the right to order his wife about or to treat her as anything other than an image bearer of God who is precious to God and is to be loved with all the care and honour the husband can muster. Modern pastors who say that the husband is the boss or leader of his wife usually go on to say that husbands should not abuse this position of authority. But if you go with that, women still have to live with the idea of submission, being submissive, giving in, protecting the fragile ego of her husband. And that is not at all what Paul is talking about here. Paul makes it clear with the words he uses to end this passage. Each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. A different word to submit, isn't it? But it fits so well with what I was saying about thankfully accepting sacrificial love. When we look at what the words head and submit mean in the context in which Paul uses them, we see that marriage is a relationship of mutual love, not a hierarchical relationship based on the unilateral authority of the husband. In the day-to-day challenges of life, this means a wife can say to her husband, I don't think Jesus would treat me like this. Please lift your game. And Carleen has said that to me. And she's been right. And I have tried to lift my game. And likewise, I think a husband can say to his wife, I don't think Jesus would treat me like this. Please lift your game. I'm going further with this than some egalitarians do because they still focus upon Paul's command for men to love and for women to submit to that love. They say this suggests they may have differentiated responsibilities. And I recognise that there are generally sort of at a general level, differences between men and women. But there is nothing in the Bible that suggests that men universally make better leaders than women or that women are universally better suited to playing second fiddle. And also, I do not think that gender-based differentiated roles make sense of the rest of the teaching of Jesus and Paul on marriage and, and what it means to follow Jesus. Over the last 20 years or so, conferences have been held on subjects like biblical masculinity and being the man. And I hate them. The mere thought of them makes me sick. Nowhere does Jesus say or imply men should act like this or women should act like that. He calls us all to be like him men and women, and transgender and non-gender. Jesus' command to love God and love neighbour works for us all, as does his example of getting down on his knees to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus never said, I am the head of the church, I am your leader. He won followers by his love and wisdom, not by falling back on his authority as the Son of God and the Messiah. 
You want to be a biblical man? Follow Jesus. You want to be a biblical woman? Follow Jesus. The hard bit is not seeing what Jesus wants us to do. It's doing it. And he is there to help us when we listen to him and call upon him and try to walk in his ways. So my conclusion is short and simple. Marriage is a non-hierarchical relationship of mutual love, care, service, and if you do it right, a lot of fun. This is part of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus for men and women. So let's stand and praise him now for his gospel. Amen.